Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Groves podcast. just want to take a moment to acknowledge the irony that as a kid I was told I talked too much and now I have a podcast. And that what we often were criticized for as children can actually be the source of our superpowers. You know, like, not saying my podcasting is a superpower, but like a lot of the way that I, I would say, dealt with emotional pain was to surround myself with lots of people, was to be busy, was to be funny, was to not allow people to see behind my smile. I often got asked, uh, do your teeth ever get dry because you smile so much? <laughs> and I was like, licked my teeth. I'm like, well, yeah, they actually do. As I've gotten older and I did things like an undergrad in finance, which I didn't even want to do, that I like followed these stories and narratives that you're taught to follow. And it's there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's the thing is a lot of my experiences were still positive. They were still, although I didn't enjoy my undergrad, my finance degree, I enjoyed being in a community and being in university, which is obviously a privilege. And I recognize that. And isn't that so fascinating that because we're taught that that's what you're supposed to do, we are then taught to tolerate it, that it's normal. And that's why it's so important that you take an audit of what is normal for you. What have you normalized that actually isn't what you want? What have you made just like, oh yeah, that's just how it is? Because it's, it's, it's not just how it is. You don't have to suffer, especially when it's suffering you choose. You know, and so many, I mean, so much suffering is suffering we choose because we compare our story to another one. We live in a story that's not ours. You know, like all of these are just invitations to you rejoining you. And I think it's a roomy quote that we're all just walking each other home. Fuck, I love that. I love that. And we're all really just beside home. We're just a couple of decisions away from home. We're a couple of conversations away from home. And once you get home, you can never not be there. You'll leave it because you'll make decisions that go against your integrity and your values. But that's how you learn what your values and your integrity are. And so let the past belong to the past. Let the future live there. Allow today's business to be today's business. Everything else can't be attended to. So why do we suffer from that? So here we are. All right. Well, with all that said, one of my favorite humans I have on my podcast this week who had taken a little time off having a couple of kids and we met years ago. I tell a bit of that story on, on the podcast, so I won't get into that. But Jamie Jenkins is brilliant. She is so fucking brilliant and such a phenomenal human. And I can't wait for you to hear her wisdom. 
She's an expert on addiction and human behavior and overcoming challenges. I mean, what a nice broad brush. I love it. And she's so smart and just such a good person. And I can't wait for you to hear her. So without further ado, here's Jamie Jenkins. This week I got uh, now a longtime friend. Yes, we officially crossed the barrier, I think. I think we are into, uh, I should tell people first, you're hearing Jamie Jenkins. Jamie Jenkins, I would like to title a human behavior expert. You didn't title yourself that, but I'm titling you that. And you help people overcome challenges and addictions. And you do that through many modalities and also through the music. And, and so first, thanks for being here. No, thank you for having me. I, uh, I'm excited to, to chat with you. Me as well. Jamie, is, Jamie and I, actually, Jamie's, we're originally both from Calgary area. That's where we met. And we met through a friend who I told that I was interested in positive psychology and Jamie had just finished the master's program at UPenn. And so that's how we connected. And then we became fast friends. And then now we get to do this, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's uh, for everybody who is a fan of Mark Groves. um, I'm going to do that thing where I knew him before, but he is like the (laughs) same person. So you picked the right person to follow and listen to. (laughs) <laughs> well, I like that there's there shouldn't have to be a wall between the two spaces of uh, who I am and who I am. You know what I mean? I There shouldn't be, but I think that that, that there is. Yeah, there often is. And the well, I appreciate that. Thank you. And the I think that's why we're just uh, we're friends is because it's the same same. It's like, why? Let's just be let's just have fun everywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? have that fun everywhere. <laughs> oh, God. So when I first saw you speak, it was at the Canadian Positive Psychology Conference, and you were speaking on music. And I remember I've told you that there was a line in your talk that really resonated with me, where you said that we listen to sad music because it reminds us that other people are sad, too. And I know that's true from, like, I think anyone who listens to me regularly knows that my go-to breakup song was End of the Road by Boys to Men. Um, but now there's Adele, which that's like a whole other level of <laughs> that takes right? to your knees, shit. <laughs> right? Which, she got me through a lot. Thank you, Adele. For I'm so there. glad that wasn't around during my <laughs> first breakups because that shit, she knows how to sing from the depths of the soul. The Boys to Men were good. I, mean, like, I liked when the guy fell down screaming in the rain with his shirt open that in his videos. But so... Tell me why that is true. Like, what is it about music and the human experience that that and why that resonated so much? for me? I think that we all long for connection and we all want to know that we're not alone. And I think I have to add a little caveat into that because that was a while ago and, and research has caught up and uh, proves that that listening to sad music when you are sad is um, extremely beneficial because for that reason. It connects us with not only our own sadness, but lets us know that other people have been there. And someone like Adele, who has been there clearly because she somehow can get inside of our brain and our heart and tell the world exactly what we're feeling, you feel connected. And and in a time where, especially in a heartbreak, where you feel like oh, I'm never going to feel that connection with somebody. You can through music. Yeah, I've always felt that with music. And it, I don't think it has to be sad music. I think if you, you can have that experience through uh, going to like a music festival and mm. or a music concert of somebody that you really enjoy and like look to the person next to you like jamming out and being like, I love this too. And you know nothing about that person other than the fact that they are having the same amazing experience as you. And I think music is unique in its ability to do that on such an instantaneous level. The caveat to that, uh, my, my warning, is that the research does say that if you listen to sad music when you are actually depressed, 
um, it can actually make you ruminate and, and get you further into depression. So if you are finding yourself feeling worse listening to sad music, that's a like thing to say, hey, maybe I should talk to somebody. I wonder if that research is correlated to the amount of coconut bliss, peanut butter, chocolate, ice cream I've consumed listening to sad, sad music. I, got, <laughs> I just got the picture of the, like, <laughs> the carton, the carton. like ugly crying. I love it. <laughs> it, it, Let's it, it, it. I, I've done that happy, too. So. Oh, my gosh. It is such a place of joy, that stuff. Peanut butter and chocolate together is a solution to so many things. That's right. When you were speaking about concerts, I think of like moments where I felt so in flow with the group's flow that like Mumford and Sons at uh, a music festival in the Gorge, I forget what that one's called. And then uh, I think of listening, like where you said, when you listen to positive music too, I remember listening to Kid Cudi, Pursuit of Happiness at Coachella as the sun was setting, sort of like the perfect uh combination of things and just elicit, being eliciting it eliciting so much joy yeah it hits us right in that uh, to be neuro nerdy about it but it like hits us right in like the limbic system so that old like feeling system that like some of the oldest parts of our brain it like completely bypasses all this like thinking and overthinking and getting stuck in it and just goes straight in there which is Amazing. Yeah. It's, and so I'm curious, what was the path that led you to doing this healing through music? Because you have the company, Make Music Matter, and then Healing in Harmony. Gosh, these these, okay. these names are so good. I don't know. <laughs> you did your own branding. Well done. Well, to clarify, Make Music Matter is, is a Canadian charity um, that was started over 10 years ago, and and um, not just myself, I'm the, the chair of the board, and we have a huge team of people making this happen. But our, our signature program is called the Healing and Harmony Program. And mm. what that does is kind of harnesses that, that power of music to instantly bond and to overcome and to make you feel comfortable almost. So um, what we do is we pair a, a psychologist, a trained psychologist, um, with a music producer. So somebody not trained in psychology at all, but is just purely music production. Mm -hmm. And we bring in a group of people who have been through some sort of traumatic experience, whether it is women in the Democratic Republic of Congo at the Pansy Hospital who have been victims of gender-based violence and have gone through the physical healing exper experience, but um, find themselves dealing with social and psychological and emotional to kids in refugee camps or in um, experiencing disabilities or soon to be in Canada um, uh, with some Indigenous people in the northern Manitoba region. And they all get together and they share their experiences together. And the psychologist leads them through a typical group process of dealing with trauma and dealing with everything that comes up with that. And through that process, the music producer comes in and helps them translate that into a song. And the music that's been coming out is incredibly powerful. They're not really sad songs. They're, they're sour songs of empowerment and songs mm. of people overcoming and, and songs of saying, yes, this happened to me, but I am strong. And um, this is what's amazing. And that process we've shown, we should have a study coming out later this year that shows improvements in PTSD, depression, and anxiety. Wow. They carry on and actually record that music um, and get uh, not only a CD of their music, it gets uh, played on local radio stations. They actually go around as a tour afterwards and become actual artists. They, we sign them to a record label. Their music is available on Spotify, Apple Music, streaming services worldwide. They are legitimate artists. And yeah, they they feel incredibly powerful after they go on tour, do community concerts and and really find strength through the power of song. That's so incredible to be able to take what has been a traumatic experience, both individually and as a collective, 
in that community, but then bring it to the mass collective. Because I really do believe that it's the music is created from an energetic space that it doesn't. It's kind of like when they say you can go to an ashram in India and you don't need to understand the words to get the experience. Mm hmm. You know, like you don't have to have been through the exact same experience to get the healing that the music provides, which I guess just uh, correlates to what we were saying about sadness, that there's a way of, that we just feel seen and witnessed, even though there's not literally always someone standing in front of us singing that song, making eye contact to us, although that I'm, I'm sure is a great dating strategy. But the that the fact that there's really just the sound of it is so cathartic and healing and and, and I uh, that's such a cool program. Thank you. Um, it was it was developed by a lot of people working really hard, and um, I'm really proud of it. And, and yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. So, in because you do also a lot of because I you know I follow you on Instagram too. Obviously, if I didn't, that'd be weird. But <laughs> in that, I I read a lot of your work about an individual understanding their own addictions, their own trauma. And I'm, I'm curious about how, of course, you use music in that perspective and also just your perspective on that, on how people navigate through the healings of those. Addiction That's in broad particular. Broad topic. Yeah. I mean, we can go so many Can places. you just take this on? This will, <laughs> By the end of this hour? Yeah, no problem. I will have yeah. addiction cured. <laughs> That's great because then I won't, this coffee that I'm drinking right now will be put down. Yeah, no, don't do that. And <laughs> I think the interesting thing is, is this whole, I mean, I could go off, this is a whole dissertation that I am currently also writing on addiction and, and, and what it is and how people get through it. And it's not one thing and it's not the same thing for everyone. But for me, how I use music is, is I use it to, to try to understand where people are in their brain which I, I want to clarify too, I'm not a music therapist and there is amazing people who are music therapists and, and use it very differently. But for me, I use it as a window to say, you know, what are you thinking? What music are you listening to right now? Because sometimes we don't know what we're feeling and it's really hard to say, I'm feeling this right now. And this is why. And that would be really nice if everybody could come into my office with like a card that's like, this is how I'm feeling. <laughs> this is what's happened. And this is how I need to get over it. And that's never happened. So I found that by just sitting and listening to music with people and being like, what are you jamming out to? What do you feel when you listen to this? And, and, and why, and, and really not talking about their problem at all allows people to get way deeper than if I was to be like, why are you using this every day? Or um, coming at it from almost a more judgmental point of view. It's just a, let's just talk about music and see where we're at. And then that leads into open conversations and it leads deeper. And addiction is an interesting one because it, it deals and touches so deeply in shame. And, and addiction work is shame work and you can't escape that. I don't think no matter what modality you use to get yourself out of addiction and, and there is multiple ways out, but none of them can get you out completely unless you talk about shame. And um, what I find music does, and, and I can compare this a little bit to what happens in the healing and harmony program is there's deep shame with with being a victim of something. There's mm. there's deep shame involved with a lot of these things and, and music cuts through a lot of that and just says, it is what it is. It's not shameful, here it is. And it's safe. It's safe to listen to a song. It's hard to say, I feel ashamed because of this. It's really easy to say, I listened to this song about someone getting raped or abused and I, I resonated with it because I've been there. That's a lot easier to say than to just come out and say it straight. Yeah, it's true. It, it becomes the vehicle, I guess, of the of the owners or the claiming of it and the declaring of it and whatever else that might look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think music has always been there for me, and and I've I've never been good at it. <laughs> like I was in mm -hmm. a junior high band at Rideau Park Elementary School. Shout out to. The Rams. Hey, Madeline Douay over here, the Dolphins. I played the trumpet. <gasps> oh, really? You were one of the yeah. cool trumpet boys? I was always like, the trumpet boys were like the cool boys. 
I'm not sure. I feel like there's sort of a paradox in that statement, but yes. Yeah. I, I was a cool trumpeter. Okay. Yes. I was a baritone girl, which is not quite a tuba. Um, that's so pretty cool. It is. I'm down with it now, but in junior high, which is, I mean, and that's like the, that's, that's like, like where, ju- <laughs> that's like where judgment goes to be born. Exactly right. Oh, like like insecurity and judgment happening in a petri dish. Of- oh, and add in puberty. I mean, the only thing that I'm really grateful for in that time is wet dreams. That <laughs> that I mean, the first one I ever had, I was like, "What is happening here?" And I want more of this. Really, it's got to be such a weird thing as a girl. I mean, I think girls do have wet dreams, but you just kind of wet up, and you're like, "Oh, it's like like there's no like mess." <laughs> I mean, I don't want to get into the details on this, but I have, I am, there was nothing but joy. Fantastic. Why would you get mad at that? I would not get mad at that. That's right. Thank God for that, for little teenage boys. You know what? I still have them as an adult. Isn't that interesting? That's a fun fact for you listening. (laughs) That I still have wet dreams and it's a blessing. We'll see what happens when you talk to old friends. While recording, who knows? Yeah, right. Caught on this. People are listening are like, "What the fuck are we talking about now?" Okay, <laughs> they're lost. Talking. We started with music, got addicted to something, and now we're on wet dreams. They're all related. Come on, people. Well, I'll bring it back. So I don't know who I heard say this, but I believe I heard someone say this: that addiction is a distraction from presence, like a distraction from the present moment, like full embodiment within self. I th- I sort of had the same reaction, like, hmm, that's interesting, because I really thought about it like my own addictions, like the things that I know pull me away from who I am, right? The ones that take me outside of being fully embodied because of shame and because of not knowing how to sit within grief and anger and all the boxes we're told we have to live in means we have to hide other boxes of, of reality of being a human, which, you know, when I think about not being able, you know, deciding not to drink anymore. And again, doing it not from a societal idea of like, I should not drink because I'm an alcoholic. I should not drink just because I don't want to drink anymore. Like I have this intuitive feeling. And then I had the same feeling about marijuana because I found I was sort of playing whack-a-mole with my, my ways of pulling me away from myself. And so then not doing marijuana and then And I wasn't doing it a lot. I was just doing it enough that it was, again, an intuitive feeling like, hmm, I think I need to get rid of that. And then I found myself in full presence. And then I found myself feeling all the feels, (laughs) more of the feels. (laughs) The ones that I, you know, I would have, I bet you before, no, I'm certain of this, before I stopped doing those things, which I don't want to become like, a, as Ram Das calls it, a horny celibate. Like, I don't want to become so restrictive with myself that I don't have a healthy relationship mm-hmm. with everything. Like, moderation is true for all things, except I think that when one is prone to addiction, moderation is sort of a joke. You know, it's not something that they can get to yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm interested. What are your thoughts on all those thoughts? There's a lot of thoughts there. My first reaction was similar to yours. I was like, mm, anybody that says starts a sentence with like addiction is this. I'm automatically a little bit like, mm, I mean, it's so many different things for so many yeah. different people. And, and I think that we have a very stereotypical view of what addiction is. And I think you touched on it a little bit when you talked about um, the reasons why and like why you're using are you using just because and I use using because let's that's what it is I guess like for me anything that we put into our body that isn't food I mean food can be an addiction too it's so hard there's such a an argument Candy. yeah everything is an addiction like you can be addicted to pretty much anything so you you have to go a little bit deeper than the thing and I think we get so stuck on the thing. Oh, he's a alcoholic. And that's, mm. and then we start ranking them. And it's like, well, an alcoholic is at least I'm not an opiate addict. And it's like, well, at least, and then it's like, why are we categorizing this? Everybody is mm. using for a reason. And, and what is that reason? Are you using to get away from something? So like you said, do I not want to feel feelings? So 
going to put those in a box and I'm going to put a giant bottle of whiskey on top and not feel mm-hmm. those. Or do I, am I, I, for me, a lot of it, when I was younger, when I was using alcohol um, in a not healthy way, I was using it to fit in. Like I'm socially awkward. I'd rather be like on the outside of the party, like observing things, but in order to like engage in 20 year old culture, I, I, I needed a drink. So um, there's like the mommy culture where it's like, Oh, mommy needs a drink. It's like, well, do you need it? Or do you want it? Are you using it to lubricate a social situation? Or are you just having a drink with your friend? How are you coming about it? And, and what is it doing for and against you, I guess is. Yeah. I read a really fascinating article that I'm sure it might bring up some things for some people listening right now, but the article was so interesting and it was about this culture of moms drinking wine. And the woman who wrote the article, I can't remember her name, but what I was fascinated by is that she expressed that she quit drinking because she's found that her like mom wine drinking was just functional alcoholism. Mm -hmm. And she said that like, what was the message I was sending to my children that I needed wine to survive motherhood? And I just thought to myself, like, one, I don't have children, so I reserve any form of judgment. But I did find it interesting because I've certainly seen and experienced that, that, that there is this celebration of like, let's do wine night, which again, in moderation is great. But when it becomes part of the identity of anything. It is. And I think that that's what's so interesting is that um, I think sometimes we... We celebrate it, but really all it is, is is somebody saying, you know what, being a mom is fucking hard and nobody should discount that. Nobody, nobody would. I don't think anybody would challenge that at all. It's how are you coping with it? And if, and if Mm. you need a glass of wine every night, something needs to change because that's not sustainable. That's not healthy. It's nothing to say that you're a bad person for wanting to have a glass of wine. I mean, it's no different than the CEO that comes home after work and is like, oh, I need to have a drink or I need to have my scotch. Or guys having beers, you know, that's so normal. But again, normalized behavior that how do you connect outside of connecting? Like when I quit drinking, what I really wanted to do was break social expectations and see how I felt and also how other people felt. Because I could see it was codependency lingering in just choices. Mm -hmm. Like I was afraid of the impact of saying no, even though that's just a construct. There was no reason that I shouldn't be able to just go to a social expectation and say no and see, like if I wasn't codependent, then it wouldn't matter. No, it doesn't matter. Like once you've broken that, but there is such pressure, like being like, I don't know if you've experienced this because maybe you did it when you were a little older, but being younger and saying no to drinking Oh man, like what's I bought you this shot. Like why? I was and they're insulted. I was that guy. So I that I think I was afraid of younger versions of me. Because I'd be like, (laughs) why do you not have a drink tonight? Because I couldn't not have a drink that night, you know, and what it was bringing up for me. I hate that I was that guy and the guys who I used to do that to. I was like, listen, I recognize the irony of what's happening here, (laughs) you know. Well, we grow and evolve. And I think that like, we can't be afraid of things that we did in our former past and, and call out culture that we have right now is definitely making people afraid of that. But you can't be afraid of growth. And you can't be afraid of saying, yeah, I fucked up when I was younger. And that was probably like shitty of me. Dude, I, I made like people do egg stands. And I was like, you're a, like wussy if you don't do it. And like made some little kid, a little kid, I was like 16. She was like 15, but made her puke. And like, how is that cool? <laughs> I mean, it's funny. At now, the time, it's funny too, you know, but the Yeah, I get because I've said before, like I have had the blessing and the luck that choices I've made have not led to the ending of my life or to um, like something dramatic happening to a friend of mine. Like I've been very lucky, you know, like I've I drank at a keg party when I was 16 and I got real smashed. And I mean, I was drinking beer out of a a milk carton. So that tells you my commitment to my beer. (laughs) And it was after a football game and the party got crashed by a gang that I didn't know, obviously. And I got 44 stitches in my head. And a friend of mine came to save me and he got, I think, 25 stitches in his head. And so I easily could have died that night. 
Yeah. You know, and and so I think about like when we don't recognize the blessings we've had to not have certain consequences. Like I'm I remember one time this is the only time I ever drove drunk. I drove to a 7-Eleven and uh, which was four blocks from my house. That was dumb to get nacho cheese, nachos and nacho cheese because you got to have one with the other. And I remember the next morning being like, wow, you like put your life at risk and potentially others because you wanted nachos. Like that's an issue. That's a problem. Yeah. And then I just committed to never doing it again. And then, I mean, that, that, that happens so often. And then I think the problem with, with, with addiction is that it starts that way. So one of the theories of addiction that I follow most closely is one developed by a man, Dr. Mark Lewis, who himself has been through opiate addiction. He, mm-hmm. as, as he was going through um, his like education and becoming a doctor in psychology, he was supposed to be giving opiates to rats and he was taking them himself. Um, and he, he, I mean, he eventually got busted and, and himself looks back and says, you know, I was very privileged and very fortunate that I had people willing to go to bat for me, um, who didn't just throw me in jail and my life got ruined. I was able to turn it around and, and go on to study neuroscience. And, and what he describes addiction is, is, is a developmental learned behavior. So the first time you've had that stressful day as a mom and you go and you're like, fuck, I'll just have a glass of wine. You feel better. So what are you mm-hmm. going to do the next time? Our brains are lazy and like keen on feeling better and maintaining homeostasis. So it's like, mm-hmm. oh man, I felt like this before. I don't like feeling like this. This thing you did last time was really quick and made me feel really good. So we'll do it again. And then we'll do it again and we'll do it again and we'll do it again. And, and like walking through a giant field of snow, you're not going to start walking down different paths. You're going to take the one that's already there. It's the same with your brain. And then you wake up one day and you're like, fuck, I can't stop this. And that's when the addiction is there, but it doesn't start that way. And I mean, it it gets progressive and progressive and progressive, obviously, but it's, you don't wake up addicted. You learn to be addicted. Yeah. Much like you learn all behaviors, you know, and especially if you come from a family with addiction, I mean, that's what you look is like what one parent does to enable and partner with a parent who is an alcoholic or a drug addict or has an addiction to their anger, you know, that we, we learn how to pivot and support the system to survive. Yeah. And that's such a, and then as a kid, if you've never seen healthy relating, it's so natural for us to take the same role in an adult relationship to be like, Oh, I just know, I know to be quiet. I know to, uh, not make too much of a ruckus, walk on eggshells, see love as chaos, see love mm-hmm. as uncertainty. This is normal. And then someone like calm comes along and is like, I love you. And you're like, uh, no, like that's pretty boring. Like, yeah. how am I supposed to take out my childhood role? You're too nice. Yeah. No, I think, I think there's a legitimacy to like the boringness that happens when you're not. Yeah active in, in some sort of addiction. And you're right. It, like it comes from so many different places and whew, I, I mean, it takes, it takes a lot to, to get out of it. It takes stopping and it takes facing your shame face forward and saying, you know what, it's going to be uncomfortable. Um, but there's no way out, but through it and yeah, just keep keeping changing <laughs> your behavior and, and getting there. And I think, yeah, I think the one thing that I've seen pull people out more than anything is an acceptance that this is like, I can't go back and change any of that. I can't, um, I can't go back and change the things that have happened to me. And, and similar to what I found with the women coming out of, of the Pansy Hospital and the Healing and Harmony program is it's an ownership over that past trauma. Like I'm not responsible for any of that shit that happened. 
that's not my fault. I am responsible for, for how I move forward and mm-hmm. I am responsible for my actions from now on. So it's, it's at once a acceptance that you can't change the past and a realization that you can change the present and the future. And that is, is the, the single thing for me that I've seen make the switch for people and, and give them that control back and, and say, yeah, okay, you have this thing. And I don't care whether you call it a choice, a disease, or, or however, a learned behavior, whatever you want to call it, you now have the choice to make a different choice. And you, you consistently have to make that choice. And in, in the beginning, it's extremely hard. So whatever you can do to to reinforce that choice, whether it's AA or a treatment facility or um, whatever your modality is, it's yeah, it's a, it's a continuous process because it didn't happen overnight. So it's not going to fix overnight. When I love when we separate it from who we are, you know, when you separate it from who you are, it's that's, I do. I mean, I have a sister who's an alcoholic who's sober and, oh yeah, you know, my sister and yeah, she's the best. And, and her sober wisdom is incredible. You know, and it's and she's writing about sobriety and all those things. And it's it's been really interesting with her because she's um, she started with AA and her and I have had a lot of conversations about this. I have a number of friends in AA Mm -hmm. and and who have since moved beyond it. or I don't want to say beyond, but to a different modality. Mm -hmm. And one thing that is common in our conversations and if someone listening is in AA and a big advocate of AA this is no insult to AA one thing that i find fascinating cuz you know you and i really from a positive psychology perspective words shape your world you know really that's you know, i think who's a david cooper writer who says like our human systems move in the direction of the questions we ask and i i think that the one our words create worlds is that him too i think that's him our world that's- is largely created by the questions we ask, I believe. See, that was a better, that was a direct quote. So one thing that was, came up in all of these conversations, especially one of my friends who newly joined AA, Mm -hmm. uh, is when we call it a disease at first, which I think is the surrender to it first, you know, that, that is an important aspect of the surrender. And then what was in that conversation, there was a lot of triggers going on Mm -hmm. was this then conversation of like if it isn't a disease that you are subject to or victim to Mm -hmm. then you can change it then it becomes actually like a coping strategy a survival strategy a learned behavior i love all of those because what they do is they make it not about you so much as like you actually needed that thing Mm-hmm. to survive. You needed that behavior to cope and get through something and you learned it from somewhere. And then when you can meet that with love and compassion, no matter the addiction, it could be Instagram. It could be anything. It yeah. could be sex. It could be well, food restriction. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's true. It could be wet dream. No, it can't be a wet dream. <laughs> oh, no, that's right. That'd be, that'd be great. That would be um, unfortunate. You if I could go to bed being well. like, can I just have one? And every time it would happen. Um, <laughs> It's interesting so, what you touch on then, because I think I think maybe a little bit of history on the on the medical model is is important. So the medical model was born out of the moral model, which is you're an awful person, you make bad choices, and you're a addict, and it, it's that like feeling, that visceral feeling. You're, it's a moral shame. That it's a moral shame. failing. It's a moral yeah. failing, and so the medical model was born out of that as kind of a a counterbalance to that to say, okay, it's not a moral failing, it's a brain disease. And, and the definition that they're using is that addiction changes the brain. Mm-hmm. And yes, it does. But so does becoming a taxi driver in London, because you have to memorize, oh, yeah, that's right. you have to pass that crazy test, right? So every lots of things change the brain. So is, is becoming a taxi driver a brain disease? The struggle is, is that that had to come because people were, and they still do. I mean, there's still a lot of shame attached. It's hopefully starting to move and the pendulum starting to swing, but uh, it, it had to come as a counteract to that. And and I think that that's, that's within the addiction world. That's, that's where it's been struggling because the medical model doesn't account for all the other reasons why people become addicted. And so mm. imagine being okay, a high functioning addict. So, so a CEO of a 
oil and gas company in downtown Calgary comes home, smashes a bottle of scotch every single night. Functioning alcoholic. He hasn't gone to jail. He hasn't crashed his car. He's running the company. The dude's an alcoholic. So Mm -hmm. why is that guy going to stand up and say, hello, I'm an alcoholic. I have a brain disease or a mental illness with no cure that makes me do crappy things. Like, who's going to line up for that disease and say, yeah, I've got that? It's no different than saying it's a fundamental character flaw to saying it's a flaw in your brain. Mm. It's still like taking, again, like you said, all that control away. And I found that disempowering for a lot of my very high-functioning addicts who are like the type of people who are like, get things done. You set a goal, they accomplish it. You set a goal, they accomplish it. Now tell them they have something that's out of their control. No, like they're not They're They'll go further into their denial and they'll be reinforced in that denial by everybody around them who is mm-hmm. reliant on them not being flawed. So it's like the high functioning addict gets put in this like bubble where they basically have to continue or become this thing that they don't want to become. And and that's something that I think needs to change. I think if we change our our attitude on on what addiction is and and how people come to it and and how people can get out of it, uh, it changes the conversation for a lot of people. That being said, if you're in AA and it's working for you, amazing. Keep going. Yeah. Like absolutely. I, if if you found something that works, as long as it's not hurting you or somebody else in any other way, keep doing it. Keep doing it, but check in on yourself and don't give all the strength to the thing that you're doing because you're the one doing it. And I think that that sometimes that gets lost is that sometimes people, and I've had people say it to me in early recovery, oh, you're, you've helped me so much. And it's 0% to do with me. It's every single thing that they've done on their own. So I think giving that control back and saying, Yes, AA is great and it's working for you, but you're the one going to the meetings. You're the one calling a sponsor if you need it. You're the one pursuing higher goals. You're the one who is addressing your past behaviors and really facing that. Like you are the one walking those stages. And I think part of the surrendering of self, you need to regain that self at the end to move on into long-term recovery, which is possible. Think about how many people are high-functioning addicts who you've never known, who are now these amazing, doing incredible things, but you wouldn't have never known that they were an addict because they'll never admit to it because it's so shameful. Yeah, just the identity of that. Yeah, absolutely. And then the stories that people would come out with and be like, man, yeah, I, I had a problem and I was an addict and now look at me. It's like, well, okay, I'll sign up for that. Like... Which seems to be what the sort of modern sobriety movement is birthing is these people who've done other things that are getting backlash from the traditional communities, which, like you said, like if you make it a thing that's outside of you that 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 did the changing, that's not true. It could be the catalyst. It could be the pathway, the gateway, the whatever. But you're going to need more and something different. To, you're going you're gonna to catalyze yourself and create something from within that then you can go to share too. Yeah, take, know, it, I mean, take, it out of, take it out of the addiction context, I mean, to, to some extent. Take it to anything that people do. Uh, a diet, like how popular is the keto diet, a.k.a. <clears throat> Atkins. But like, you know, like like they, they, they say that this is the thing and it's like, well, are you attaching it to the thing or are you attaching it to the, the, the attention that you focus to a problem or an issue that you identified? And this is the steps that you took. It doesn't discount the fact that you achieved your goal. And I think that some people get offended because they say, oh, well, you're attacking my way and, and it's, it's okay. But just because you did it that way doesn't mean it's going to work for everybody. And everybody has their own pathway to the top of the mountain. And isn't it more important that we all get there? Like, I'd rather just have a party at the top of the mountain. I don't really give a shit how you got there. Yeah, I don't care if you caught a gondola, you flew in. Hey, if you flew in, just not on drugs, that'd be awesome. Yeah. I I think when we make something outside of us our God, 
that's when it becomes like this. Uh, it's sort of like the moral structure of traditional religion that that the God is outside of you making judgments of you, much like when we make the thing we use, not the drug, but the the modality of our healing, which is similar when you were saying that brought up for me is I'll often get comments or messages saying like, thank you so much because of you, I did this, this, and this. And I'm like, no, because of you, like, it's not because of me. You had to have the hard conversations. You had to reclaim yourself. Shit, I just got to put a post up on Instagram. That's way easier. I'd rather do that than have the hard conversations. Yeah. You know, for you, which I have them in my life, of course, and I live the things I say, but at the same time, I'm not living it for you. And that's, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't imagine what it's like to be someone who's who's had so much more struggle than I have to have to have to face systems of change. Like I'm a white straight male. I recognize that the system is structured for me to navigate through it, even with hard conversations. Yep. You know, I I sat, you know, in my previous relationship talking to my partner about how like, I recognize that it's not like some act of fucking crazy courage that I declare my needs in a relationship. But for a woman to do that or for a woman or person of color or a woman of color or any sort of intersection is so different than mine. It is. And I think we all face different challenges and we all have different journeys, but we're all human and we all face struggle. And I think that the need to compare and, and I guess, come out on top is, is not helpful. No. I mean, if, if it's working for you, amazing. That makes me happy. And, and if you want to tell me about it, cool. But if I choose to do a different way and it works for me, that doesn't take away from yours. My success and your success, like the more we move up, the more everybody moves up. It's not mm. a flattening of the bell curve. It's taking that whole thing and like shifting it upwards and saying, let's all just move. Like if it's hard for you as a cisgendered white male in Canada from moderate to to good means growing up imagine imagine how hard it is for for somebody who's not that who has multiple barriers and that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that your challenges weren't hard for you they were and and that doesn't mean that you getting better is is not helping somebody else it it's opening it for somebody else so no it's not a great thing the, the heavens aren't going to open and shine down and rain candy on you because you've said exactly what you need in a relationship. But the more you do it and the more you talk about it, the more it becomes normalized and the more the normal shifts. And now it's easier for everybody. So we can only do us. We can't do everybody else. And we can't compare and say, oh, well, I didn't have it as hard, so it shouldn't be this for me. And that's that's just a judgment you're placing on yourself. And that ranks your, like, why are we ranking pain? God, yeah, I've got better things to do. There's a funny show on, uh, I think it's on Prime. It might be on Netflix, but it's called uh, Catastrophe. And it is, I, it was one of like, I ran out of stuff to watch on a plane. Mm-hmm. And so it was one of those things that I watched and it, it, I was laughing out. It's so funny. This guy goes to London on a work trip and he ends up having like a five night stand with an Irish woman. Nice. And then I'm not ruining anything. This is in like episode one. She gets pregnant <laughs> and then it's their journey. And it's like four seasons. It's so funny. But what there was a line that he said to her, and he's he's sober. He said to her, "You don't have, you don't have a trademark on pain. Like you're not the only one who's suffering. You're not the only one who experienced struggle." And I just always remember that line because it's often I think when we get involved in our own pain and our own trauma. And I don't know what other word to use for this, but I just think it's a good model, like maybe a good framework, is that we can become narcissistic in that, that it can become like it can engulf us. Yeah. Maybe that's, that's probably a better word for it. Um, But that we, it becomes this thing that we really, we can think we're the only one going through it. Mm -hmm. And that's human. Like that's, that's, that's normal. That's what 
humans do. Like we are self-centered and we, as we like should be, you're only going to be like, you wake up with yourself, you go to bed with yourself. Like it's, it's the way it is. So if we're not like thinking within our brain, but then also thinking about how we affect others, um, it, it, it won't work, but yeah, you get stuck in it. You say like, this is me. I am, you become, like you said, you become your trauma, you become your addiction, mm-hmm. you become your past instead of it being something external to yourself. You, you over identify with it and you're like, well, I am a trauma survivor. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. Like uh, trauma shouldn't happen to anybody and trauma is a horrible thing. And, and I think that the fact that we're becoming more aware of it in the world is great. Um, but we also need to be aware of the other side of trauma. And it's more often, more overwhelmingly, people grow and people change and it's traumatic growing. And that's really not to discount. Like when I say this, like I, I hate that trauma has become so ubiquitous because in one way it lumps somebody who I've seen like a a woman in the Congo who's gone through trauma and then a teenage girl on TikTok breaks a nail and says that she's gone through trauma. So (laughs) like it's it's just become so overused and so ubiquitous that it loses some meaning, but it's so powerful for so many people that it's difficult to talk to, to um, because there, I feel like there's so much depth to some people's trauma. And mm-hmm. I don't want anybody who has been through some horrific things to think that, that that's being minimized. Um, mm. Because I think some of this more surface level things like, like for myself, I, I, I've had things that I think would, I, I would identify as traumatic that have changed my life but I don't think that I identify as a trauma survivor. And I think that sometimes we try to identify with that because it is so powerful and it does move us through. But there's a point when you come through to the other side that you may have to release that. And I think that maybe that's where I'm talking about releasing it and releasing that identity. It's when you've crossed over to the other side and you are growing and you are flourishing and you are the flower that's come through the ground. That's when you need to step back and release some of, some of that and say, that's not me. And I am a beautiful flower now and I don't need to sit and identify with being a trauma survivor anymore. Mm, That's beautiful. That, that honoring the process from the being the caterpillar to the butterfly. That hurts. Which I, yeah, I mean, I couldn't imagine being in that cocoon. It can't be, I mean, I've been in cocoons myself. It's, and to know that, that we're constantly in like, there's a more macro cocoon that's always occurring, Mm -hmm. you know, that changes the only thing that isn't constant, that is constant, sorry. It's always possible. And if there's one thing that studying the brain has taught me, it's that this idea that your brain stops developing and stops growing is a myth. And you can have neurogenesis all the way until you're no longer living. And um, I think that that's empowering. And to know that there are things that you can do to grow through and change. And I think sometimes there is a fear associated with breaking up with that trauma identity and saying, I I think it's similar. Like, like if you, if you put it in the context of a breakup, there is that wonderful time, wonderful, fuck that. It's not wonderful. What what, what wrong word came out of my mouth then? See, this is why I'm the delicious. Uh, (laughs) No, there is that time where you're sitting and crying and listening to Adele and eating your chocolate, peanut butter, cocoa, nut, I'm not going to even call it ice cream. I'm sorry. It's delicious, but ice cream is ice cream. That's great. But at some point you have to admit that you're through it and you have to admit that that means releasing either your idea of who you were in that, that person, that experience and that letting go is hard. It's almost as hard as that initial breakup because you're breaking up with your breakup then you're saying, I'm actually okay. And that's okay. At some point it has to be okay to be okay. I find myself in that space or sort of bridging that space currently of, of like being through the, the grief for the most part. I, I, I had waves of it 
and joy and hope and all the things were always there. It was just that was more. And then it got released. I started to be in a more of a state of hope mm-hmm. and future and presence. And then now I can tell that I'm in that bridge of like fully letting it go and what could have been and her and the idea of her and, mm-hmm. and just really releasing that, which I can, I, I can just in this moment feel the fear with that, the fear of, of if I let her go, then, then what, then what, then what am I open to? You know, so it's like, there's a familiarity, right. And, and knowing that that's consciously real and, but just to honor. So I love how you said that, because I can feel that within me in this experience. And I hope that people listening can, can just honor that. It's, uh, it doesn't matter how much you might think, you know, you are never free from being human. And, and your biology, your your it's it's normal to be attached, to be it's healthy to care, it's healthy to grieve, it's healthy, it's healthy actually. And here's yeah. the cool part. I don't know if you've gotten to this part in your recovery or your sobriety yet, but here's the deal: you don't just get to mute one feeling. <laughs> so when you have that box of crap that you don't want to feel and you put the bottle on top, unfortunately. All those good feelings get muted and stuck down in there with it. The thing that happens when you peel it off, yeah, the bad stuff comes out and you feel it and you feel it hard and it fucking sucks. But you also get to feel the good things Mm. and you also get to experience them. And the realization is, is that the goal isn't to not feel. The goal is to feel those and be okay. And say, Mm. and be okay sometimes with not being okay. And then on the flip side, be okay with being fucking awesome sometimes. It's weird when we have a guilt about feeling good too. Like when we, right. When, like I had a conversation with Emma Tate on the podcast about grief and she lost her brother to suicide. And she said that um, healing and, and coping and grief looks different for everybody. But when, we experience the pain with them. We might compare our journey to someone else's and be like, like I have another friend who lost their partner and she started dating someone to death. And she started dating someone like a year and a half later. And the family of the person who lost their, their child were upset with her that she had moved on. Like it meant that she didn't love that person and that, and right, exactly. And, and she very much stood in the truth that like, my journey is my journey. Yours is yours. It doesn't mean I didn't love that person. It means, and I was like, wow, that is so true that we, we like think that if we don't hold on to a thing, we didn't love it. Or we like, we might lose the feelings we had if we, if we let some of the memories go. Mm-hmm. Or we dishonor it in some way. And I think that mm-hmm. that is like I, the imagery that came up for me or the words that came through my mind, since apparently I'm one of those people that don't have imagery, um, <laughs> whole other discussion, but is the reading of a book. And just because you finish a book doesn't mean that that book doesn't exist anymore. It still has its story arc. It still exists and it's beautiful for existing and it can go on yourself and you could never look at it again, but it doesn't mean that you didn't appreciate the lessons or the the learnings or the being of that book. It's still there. I love that analogy. That was yours. I just read it. Well done. Way to bring it through intuitively. (laughs) I love that though, because it does, when we make it a book, then it's not personal and when we make things not personal, then we can understand them and we can start to separate ourselves from a story that we've been living in. Mm-hmm. And fuck is it freeing to wake up in your story and go, this is just a story. And it's okay. It doesn't make it less valid. It's just yeah. like we get to pick up the pen. We get to turn the page. We realize it's not the end of the book. It's the middle of it. We might even be in the middle of a chapter. And that's to take it one step further, you're not responsible for the characters in that book either. So to take it outside of that, you're not responsible for anybody else's feelings. You're responsible for being kind and courteous and compassionate, but you're not responsible for somebody else sitting in their sadness still or moving on and being happy. You, you're you not responsible for that. You're only responsible for your own self. And that's mm-hmm. it. A sovereignty over self, you know, that ability to 
carry oneself in the world with kindness and generosity and realize that if your movement through the world disrupts other people's movement through the world, that is okay. That's actually normal. That's actually yeah. pretty normal. Yeah. It's not all, and it's not always going to be great. Like we're human. God, that's all that we permission can be. to be human. See that grand. thing? You people on the listening can't see, but I have a brain behind me. We all have one of those and they all act really weird. And anybody that claims to fully understand it is lying because the more you get into it, the more confusing it gets. So if you feel like you don't have it figured out, welcome to the club. Nobody does. And we're all just trying to muddle through together. And if we can listen to a fucking song together and jam out and put our arms around each other and forget mm. about everything else for a minute and just be human. Ah, come on. I just want it's everybody like, to like dance. Well, in that moment, you're so in flow. You're free. You're free from your story. You get embodiment, self-expression, presence. I mean, it's just, it's all of that. It is. Even if you do the robot not meaning to do the robot or the Elaine. from. I am an Elaine. I oh, am. I am the awkward one. And I, I could do the running man. man though. I can't do any of that. <laughs> I, my running man is, it's just one. It's not. You're a man I, going for a run. So yeah, that's literally, that's, that's why I'm doing it. <laughs> so, I mean, what a beautiful note to, to end on to, to deliver that, that message you just delivered of, of, you have the right to everything you experience and you have the right to be human and it's normal to make mistakes. Well, it's normal. And, and pretending okay. we don't is yes. Uh, and you won't get canceled. You won't get canceled by us. I no, promise. not by us. You must some people might try, but that's just because they're scared of getting canceled themselves. Exactly. Because they got a, a little box with some something on it that they yeah. don't want to. And see. have compassion for them because yes. that sucks. And if you're a troll out there that feels like trolling, you can come and troll me. That's okay. I'll love you. I'll love you right back. I'm sort of interested by the fact that like before people used to troll to like, you know, shit on you or like I, I had a guy troll me on YouTube telling me like you're balding. You're, I was like, thank you. I cool. thank you for the mirror. I already knew that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that started long before you came on my YouTube. My inner critic is way ahead of you. Uh, at least mine leaves with a little love. But the... The now I've noticed that a lot of the trolling is actually like seeking, like seeking to be triggered. And that's interesting because, you know, my sister had a beautiful thing she said to me a couple of weeks ago when I was with her. I love her. And yeah, she's so great. And she said, you know, what's fascinating is it's not the world's job to not trigger you. It's actually the world's job to invite the things that trigger you so you can invite your own healing. And when you obsess about changing other people's conversations and whatever you distract yourself from your own and i was like wow that's such a nice succinct way of just being like because of course i get triggered by things that differ from my opinion differ from my belief system my identity and i observe them i go well shit that was dumb what i thought before because this is actually an invitation to an expanded way of seeing yeah and Everything is a gift to to that ability to broaden our awareness rather than isolate it or limit it. Exactly. An invitation. You just have to accept or click no. It's up to you. Do you like the curriculum that you're being presented? Just quit hitting maybe. <laughs> right. No right. more of these maybes. I was the maybe person <laughs> for forever. Now it's yes or no. Yeah. You don't live in a seven out of 10. That's the ability to not commit to anything. That's right. You know? Um, so where do people find you? Because I'm <laughs> sure after this conversation, they're like, okay, I want more music. I want more experience about addiction, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You can hit me on the gram, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I hate saying that, but you I'm felt so, so millennial. I'm so, well, I am a early millennial cusper, so I feel okay with that. So you can find me there, um, at practically awesome, or if you're younger, <laughs> you can you find me on TikTok? TikTok. Yeah, you can. Oh, wow. Hit me on the talk, uh, Mama Jenkins. Um, 
man, if you're not on there, like you've got to, like it's, you want to be human, like get on TikTok. People are dancing and having fun. And then over here, there's like people talking about the, the protests happening. It is like raw and there's no, like, I'm sorry, Instagram, I love you, but you're presenting like fake images of people. Yeah. Except for Mark, then that's why I prefaced this whole <laughs> conversation with him being the same person he was when I met him before he knew that he was going to be Instagram famous. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> he is who he is, but there is like a, a falsity that that is there. And if you are on TikTok and you don't follow any of the influencers or creators, it's awesome. It's just people's like raw lives and they are amazing. So follow me okay, on there. Well, I'm going to check out TikTok. I am on TikTok. <laughs> you got to interact with it. So the algorithm starts getting you fun things. <laughs> okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to see. Maybe I'll see you guys on TikTok, but I'm not going to promise anything. Dude, there is some amazing psychologists and dietitians and people and doctors spreading some legit knowledge. Um so you got to get on there, man. There's right, one I'm relationship on. person that is not good. So you get on there. Okay, I'm, I'm going over after this. <laughs> I love you, Jamie Jenkins. I love you too. Let's, uh... Thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your knowledge and your time and your wisdom and all the things from the East Coast. East Coast of Canada. I know you moved all the way away from us. That's all right. I'm building a farm for you all to come hang out with. Low farms live local as fuck. Yeah, I can't wait. I'm excited. Okay, well, I love you. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. Everybody go check out Jimmy Jenkins and let's heal our addictions. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love.